0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Brian Singer about why he went to work for Facebook about why he started his 1,000 Journals project, and about why the audience for younger designers should not be limited to the design community. That's what they're benchmarking themselves against, and I think there's a whole world beyond that that we should be looking at. It's not about making an impression to other designers. It's about making an impression to the world. Here's Debbie Melman.
1: There's a website called IamSomeGuy.com. It's the online entryway into the 1,000 Journals project which collects journal entries from people all over the world and has been the subject of a book and a documentary. But the guy behind the 1000 Journals project is not just some guy to designers. He is Brian Singer, whose achievements in art and design make him that guy. Brian Singer currently manages the communication design team at Facebook. He's also the editor of a new book called Graphic Content, true stories from top creatives. He's here to talk about what those stories say about leading a creative life and to tell some of his own stories. Brian, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So what's with your stage name, the moniker Some Guy? Oh.
0: <laughs> um, you know, when I, when I started originally started the Thousand Journals project, I wanted to be anonymous, and I just thought it would be funny if the email address at the website was Some Guy at a Thousand Journals, so people didn't know who they were emailing. But over time, that became a thing. And when it finally came time to put out the book, they had author, Brian Singer. I'm like, no, it'll be better if it's just author, some guy. So I'm officially a published author under the name some guy.
1: And I kind of love that. But did you think that people might have felt like, who is this person? He doesn't feel like a real person since his name is some guy. And that means maybe he's no guy?
0: Possibly. But everything in that book is something that other people made. The only contribution I actually put into the book, other than assembling it, And curating it was, I think I wrote by some guy and forward by Kevin Kelly. That's the only thing I actually added as far as artwork goes to the book. It's really a collaboration of all the contributors to the project. Therefore, I felt it was okay if I was sort of faded to the background and not really there.
1: So I understand that you've always been fascinated by what people scrawl on bathroom walls and in public spaces. Why is that? Well, I
0: went to college at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, and our building shared a building with ROTC. And sort of back, it was an L-shaped building, and back towards the glass bone lab, there was this bathroom. And for whatever reason, there was a lot of stuff written on the walls. There were things about war and drugs and sex and politics and everything you could possibly imagine, people arguing in this public space about things they obviously felt very passionate about. And I found it really interesting that people would use a bathroom wall as a means to like, get their expressions out. I also thought it was weird that that many people took Sharpies to the bathroom.
1: (laughs) It is fascinating, the idea of sitting on the throne and wanting to communicate something to the world.
0: Yeah, I don't really do that myself. Um, (laughs) But the things that were written there really struck me as like something that a, people should be seeing more of, and B, also they might want to contribute to those conversations.
1: So you graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in graphic design from San Luis Obispo campus of California, Polytechnic State University. Really nice school. They have a really good graphic design department. Yeah. But did you? when did you know that you wanted to be a graphic designer?
0: It's funny. I think it was when I was looking down that long list of majors and realized that they all looked lame except for graphic design and Possibly I was a little bit interested in science at the time. But I think growing up, from an early stage, I really enjoyed making things. I can't even remember what grade it was, but we, uh, our school was putting on a play, and it was like the history of the United States or something. And they asked all the students in our class to draw up the program covers. And, of course, I drew the program cover, and mine was selected to be used. And for whatever reason, that's what got me very interested. And I was like, oh, look, you can have fun, draw things, and somehow... I don't know, get some appreciation for it.
1: Do you still have the cover?
0: I don't. My mom probably does somewhere in a drawer. She keeps a lot of that stuff.
1: So beginning in 2000, you had a series of very exciting jobs. You worked for Josh Chen at Chen Associates. You worked at Pentagram. And you worked for Jennifer Morla at Morla Design. Can you talk a little bit about some of your experiences in that time? How did these amazing minds influence you?
0: I was working a lot in Palo Alto. So I had worked for a few different firms down there. And in 2000, I made the move to San Francisco to work for a company called Phoenix Pop, which is no longer around, but they were trying to compete with Organic and Razorfish and all those folks. After that went under, because that was in the dot com bubble burst, I decided I just wanted to freelance. And so I ended up freelancing for Josh Chan and for uh, I worked on Brian Jacobs' team at uh, Pentagram San Francisco. And there really wasn't anything other that excited me until I saw this job opportunity with Jennifer Morla. And, like, the day it was posted, I was at her front door with my promo, you know, in a hand-done letter. And, you know, the day afterward, you know, oh, it was sort of yeah. like that kind of thing because I had so much respect for the work she had done. And it was enough with a not-handsome salary. It was a kind of a pay cut. But to be able to work with someone like that, it was well worth it. It gave me exposure to a lot of consumer brands like the Levi's, Design Within Reach, Nordstrom, those types of folks. But also seeing the way she works, just one of the smartest women I've ever seen. Can you,
1: can you share some of what was so smart about the way she worked?
0: Well, you know, it's funny. There was only a few of us at the time, and I remember sitting in the office and working on something, and, you know, she was always seemed to be out to lunch. And I was like, what is she doing all this time? We're working, and she's out to lunch. Well, the truth is she was out to lunch meeting with people that were going to give us work. I think when I was a younger designer, I didn't realize how much of the job was business development and relationship and maintaining those friendships, staying on people's radar. She was very good with that. And it's something that you don't realize it's a freelancer until there's no work. You know? And you're like, oh, I should be going to events and talking to people you know, and picking up the phone. So she was really good with
1: that. And did Josh Chen influence your, the way in which you've approached doing your side projects or your personal projects or what I'd call self-generated work?
0: He definitely takes things to the next level. You know, when he does a book and you contribute to the book, you don't end up just getting a copy of the book. He sends you these things like, oh, we took a quote from you and letter it, and we did these cards, and there's this beautiful arm. He dials everything into the level that is far beyond what you would have expected or would have even considered doing yourself. And I think that's definitely influenced sort of my approach to things. It's never about just doing a good job. It's about what's that next thing that makes it special.
1: And would you say that would be one of the most important things you learn from him?
0: Well, that, and he's just a super nice guy.
1: He's just divine.
0: Yeah. I did sit in a meeting once where he was presenting identities to a hospital, and as we started hearing the opinions of the people sitting around this big table, it just started feeling like it was going south. And I was sitting there just like, oh, no, it's going to be one of those designed by committees. And to his credit, Josh slowly began asking questions and began sort of like controlling the conversation. And by the end of the meeting, we were like right back at the place we wanted to be. And just watching him sort of like – hear people's concerns, and address them in a manner. I was like, okay, that's a masterful approach to communication design in a meeting, live action.
1: Yeah, watching awesome. and designing the trajectory of a meeting is key to a successful meeting. Paula Sher talks a lot about that in Make It Bigger.
0: It's one of the few design books I've read cover to cover. It's yeah.
1: that good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so on June seventeenth, 2000, a typically cool San Francisco summer day, You embarked on a project that would ultimately change your life. You took a thousand sketchbooks, glued a thousand covers on them, stamped them a thousand times, hand-numbered them from one to one thousand, and sent them out into the world one at a time, no strings attached. Why?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I was something that I'd been thinking about in college, obviously from the bathroom walls. And I had after college gone around and I'd photographed walls at like UC Berkeley, UC Santa Cruz, bar bathrooms in San Francisco. Wait, so you
1: just go to these campuses, just sort of wander in, yeah. wander into the bathroom we'll just and take pictures.
0: Cruise around, check out the campus, photograph like I've been in a lot of bathrooms. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, I guess in my head, I'd envisioned putting together a book or something of these photos. Bathroom art. Exactly. And that evolved into, well, why do I need the photos to begin with? Why aren't there a lot of these? Why don't they travel? There was something about these conversations that I thought people should continue adding to. And when I finally came to that, it was five years after graduating. um, And it was literally walking up 8th Street after work one day. And it was one of those ideas that you have that if you don't do it, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. So there wasn't really a choice. It was like, hey, this is a good idea. I have to do this, period. I, I started out with 1,000 because it seemed like just an absurd enough number. Sending out 10 or 100 just seemed maybe too easy. But I did want it to be a finite number because then it wouldn't, it wouldn't be like a self-enclosed experiment. You know, people always ask, why didn't you send out more when all those were gone? And it's like, well, this way we can look at those 1,000 at the time they were sent out and document what happened with them. It is its thing. And for success or failure, it's what people contributed to at that time.
1: So I read that you stated that the feeling of isolation created by the Internet led to the idea of the 1,000 Journals Project. Is that true?
0: Thinking back to that time, you know, this is when blogging was first really taking off. It was a thing. And it felt like a time when culture was starting to transform from, you know, this new medium that we were using to run our businesses and interact with each other. It made us so much closer. It made the world small. But at the same time, I think at least I was feeling a little more disconnected from things.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember in, well, six weeks after 9-11, the iPod came out. And then in the two years after that, really leading up to 2004, everybody was talking about isolation nation, how the iPod was turning us into a culture of socially challenged people. Mm -hmm. This isolation that you felt, what gave you the sense that Randomly sending out blank journals for people to create whatever they wanted in the pages would be a way out of that isolation.
0: Well, I felt like it's a physical thing and it's a physical connection you can have to someone you know or a perfect stranger. There's something very romantic about that that might make the world feel like a smaller place just because you happened upon this thing and you contributed to it and then it's off into the world and you don't really know what happens to it. Somehow that to me feels better than, you know, living your life on the Internet the whole time.
1: I know that there was a stamped message inside each of the 1,000 journals. What was Mm -hmm. the message? Oh,
0: man. I, I had at the very beginning of the project consulted one of these free artist lawyer services in San Francisco. And, you know, the recommendation was that you need to have this full disclosure on every page of the journal. (laughs) <laughs> you know, if you want to put these things. Like, and I was like, mm, not going to happen. So yeah. I, I sort of wrote my own. There's some profanity in it. But it's, it's more of like, you know, contribute to this. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be used for. And go crazy. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I had this saying that this is an experiment and you are part of it. And that, you know, people always ask what my expectations were about the project. And the truth is that I had no idea what was going to happen. They all could have fallen off the face of the earth. There could be a thousand of them still moving around right now. But I did hope that people would take them and sort of internalize them and do something they wanted with them and contribute a slice of their life or some thoughts or advice or something, a little piece of themselves to this project and therefore make the project what it is.
1: As the project unfolded, what did you start to see about humanity? Did your thoughts about people change? Did your thoughts about creativity change?
0: When 9-11 happened – There were entries from a bunch of different types of people in a bunch of different areas, all responding to the same event. When the war in Iraq happened, the same thing. So for me, it was fascinating seeing how, like, especially with these global events, people are all dealing with the same things and a lot of very common, similar feelings. Their opinions on them might differ, whether we should or should not go to war. But sort of seeing the way that people react in mass to some event, I thought was fascinating. It was like a little window into our own culture.
1: So you left the first 100 journals at random places all over San Francisco. You handed them out to friends and people that you worked with, to strangers. You then sent the next 100 to people who'd heard about the project and offered to distribute them where they lived. So you had people giving them out in Australia, in South Africa, in Denmark, And in England, and then I read that as words started to spread, more and more people wrote to you and were asking for journals. And then you individually mailed all of those out. Yeah, it Um, seemed
0: like a good idea at the time. It it wasn't.
1: (laughs) It's a lot of work. Um, And then soon after, you created an online sign-up list where anyone around the world was able to get on the list and in line to receive a journal. There were long wait lists and Some people became desperate, from what I understand. They were offering money and trading sort of things to anyone that could give up a journal. How did this groundswell influence how you were feeling about the the project? Well, it it
0: definitely became a thing in like the early 2000s, so 2001, 2002, where it's sort of the height of its popularity. And the anxiousness or the desire for people to participate in it Obviously felt very good. It felt like I had created something that people wanted to be a part of. At the same time, you can contrast that with the fact that you'd send these things out and then you wouldn't hear from them for two months. By the time the sign-up list was set up, there were already 700 floating around. So 300 were more on like you signed up online and it was mailed to you and you sort of were supposed to send it to the next person. By the time the project became popular, people got, I don't know, a little more nervous about what they were contributing. Like they wanted to do something really great. So, but they didn't have time now, but they'd have time on the weekend. And then it was the next weekend. <laughs> yeah. And then it was two months later and there was a stack of stuff on top of it. It's almost like the pressure, because it became popular, the pressure of contributing to it became so great that it actually sort of slowed it down.
1: So was the intention for people to populate the journal with thoughts, drawings, collages, et cetera, and then send them back to you? Or was the idea that they would send it to somebody else to continue the work? To
0: send it to somebody else. I mean, the only time I really wanted them back is if they were completely full and there was like no corner left unturned where somebody could like scribble a little thought or something like that. I mean, I guess at the very beginning, my thought was that these would actually be traveling bathroom walls. Um, (laughs) People, it turned out people were a lot more respectful than that. People maybe edited themselves a little bit more than writing some, you know, some of the hardcore stuff you might see in a bathroom wall. But at the same time, they would spend more time. So you'd get more lengthy writing, you'd get more artwork, you'd get more prose and, uh, you know, thoughtfulness, then you might get, a, you know, a bar bathroom.
1: So one of the journals was the subject of a treasure hunt, journal number 354. One was abandoned at an airport. That was number one. Number one was abandoned at an airport. Mm-hmm. and number And number 949 was stolen at gunpoint.
0: Yes. Though truthfully, the woman who had that journal was mugged. Her bag was stolen. It just happened to be in the bag. I don't think the mugger was like, "Give me that journal."
1: And so you created a website that people could upload images that they were that they had created in a specific journal.
0: Correct. They could either scan what they entered. They could scan all the stuff in the journal to date. So,
1: how long was it before you finally received a journal back?
0: Oh man, I actually forget the date. I think it was two thousand three. Were you
1: surprised? Did you know it was coming?
0: I did hear it was coming because the person who had it had been sort of making sure it didn't get lost. It was one of the, one of these people who was like, I need to make sure this doesn't get lost.
1: You put a GPS on it. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I thought
0: about that. It wasn't as cheap as it is now. So I'd get this note like, it's almost full, it's almost full. And then I would go and check my mailbox every day. Finally, one day it just showed up. I sat down on myself and I just read through the entire thing.
1: What and was that like?
0: It was great. It was almost like a sigh of relief. And <laughs> um, <laughs> that one had finally made it back. After I got done calculating it, it had been through 13 states. It had been to Brazil and Ireland. It had just all these amazing stories in it that you wouldn't have seen from the website because nobody scanned it. They just, you know, people were just playing with the journal.
1: So in 2007, a documentary film was made about the project, and the filmmaker interviewed nearly half of the 1,000 contributors. How did she find them all?
0: So she actually approached me in 2005, so that's how long these things take. And she spent the first year just doing research. She tried to track down every single journal along every single path, encyclopedia brown stuff. I mean, she would, you know, send me notes. She's like, I talked to this woman and she says she doesn't have the journal, but I think she does. You know, she, <laughs> <laughs> she, lit- yeah, she really did an amazing amount of work just to try to capture the stories for the people that got the journals, for the people that didn't. And then after she had done that, she spent a year traveling around the world filming where she actually, during the course of filming, had uncovered some stories of people who, for example, whose work had been gone over. And then she was able to track down the people that did that wow. and film both of them. And it was really interesting to see, like, some people take things very seriously and some just sort of, oh, yeah, I just I put a bird on it. She was, she was really, you know, the whole time I had been thinking primarily about the entries in the journals themselves. What are people writing? What are people drawing? And uh, Andrea, the filmmaker, really thought about the people behind that and what are their stories and how are they connected
1: How were you able to fund the one thousand journals project? That's a lot of journals to buy. It's a lot of covers to make. A lot of mail to send out.
0: It's a lot of Epson print cartridges, is what it was. Yeah, surprised. You know, it's it's funny. People ask about that, and you know, we make choices with our money. Like some of us have cable, some of us don't. Some of us have nice cars, some of us don't. When I was doing the journal project, I was living in a a ten by ten room in San Francisco. I had a hand-me-down bed, a hand-me-down dresser. I had a fold-up desk. I didn't actually own any of my own furniture. The car was a hand-me-down. I spent my money on what I wanted to spend it on. Now, of course, I can afford my own stuff, so it's much better. But, you know, at the time, mid-20s, when you're just starting to save up your first little bit of money, you can do whatever you want with that. You just have to decide, and I chose journals.
1: At the beginning of the film, you quote the great Gordon McKenzie his book, Orbiting the Giant Hairball. If you ask a kindergarten class how many of them are artists, they'll all raise their hands. Ask the same question of sixth graders, and maybe one-third will respond. Ask high school grads, and few will admit to it. What do you think? Why does our creativity change over time? Why does our impetus to be creative individuals change over time?
0: I think we start fearing criticism the nail that stands up gets hammered down, that kind of thing. We fear the judgment of the group. I mean, we are, as we grow up in in society, trained to fit in, right? And I think that if we were all trained to be artists, then everyone would be an artist. Um, But we're not trained to be artists. We're trained to follow a more, I don't know, traditional path in our schooling. And I think that's unfortunate. I think it actually blocks off a lot of thinking that could benefit society. i would be amazed how many people say they can't draw, and like everyone can draw. It's it's not a skill. It's something that you have to learn, and you just practice at.
1: What about the notion of fear? I I am really astounded by the number of undergraduate seniors that I teach that seem to be already at you know nineteen, twenty, twenty one years old, editing the possibilities for their future based on what they think they could actually accomplish. So if they don't feel good enough or smart enough or talented enough, suddenly they're the ones that are limiting the possibilities for their lives before their lives have really even begun. Where do you think that happens or why do you think that happens?
0: Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think that, you know, you start at that time crafting your identity of who you want to be. You know, I think that's how we use our idols. It's like, I want to be like, Michael Jordan. I want to be like Eminem, whoever it might be. But we also might then judge ourselves against those people's talent and not realize that those people have been working hard for forty years or whatever it might be. You know, I used to make a joke that my goal in college was to get into communication arts. I just wanted to win an award and then I would know I had made it. <laughs> and you know, when that happens, you're like excited for like two days, and then you're like, "Well, that's great. Me and five hundred other people every year or every issue, whatever." And then I just started realizing that you know, what's the circulation of communication arts or any design publication in general versus the circulation of, like, teen people, right? <laughs> and or so, teen vogue. <laughs> and, and so I, I guess a lot of designers when they're in school are looking up to our, you know, people in our profession and that's what they're benchmarking themselves against. And I think there's a whole world beyond that that we should be looking at. It's not about making an impression to other designers. It's about making an impression to the world, and designers are like, I don't know, what, one hundredth of one-tenth of one percent or something.
1: So, To date, your 1,000 Journals project has reached 40 countries, every U.S. state. In addition to the documentary, you also published a 212-page book. You've had exhibits all over the world. At the very same time all of this was going on, you were also starting your own business – Altitude SF, which you helmed until two thousand and twelve, what was your motivation for starting your own business at the time you were also heavily heavily involved in doing all of these self generated projects with your own money <laughs>
0: <laughs> well the, the, the truth is that I, you know I did actually do fairly good business at altitude for a very small shop, but I spent all the money on on the side projects i mean that's the whole reason I was working. I don't know if it was a, so much a conscious decision as I, I looked around and there there wasn't much that interested me. And I felt like doing my own thing would provide me a, the freedom that I needed to if I wanted to just pursue a side project for a while. Um, you can do that. When you've got a 40 to 50 hour a week job, it's much harder to do that. So for that solid seven years, I had a nice balance of the work that paid the bills and the side projects that I really enjoyed doing.
1: So while you're building your business... Not only do you have the 1,000 Journals project that you're also managing, you're also continually working and simultaneously working on your fine art, which I I kind of – when I was looking at all of your art, I felt like it's bigger than art. They almost felt like art installations. Um, You created mixed media pieces constructed from flyers stapled to telephone poles. So flyers like lost dog flyers or garage sales. You wrote about it and described it as such. After years of weather, these community billboards become a rusting graveyard of events past. So you removed the paper scraps and reassembled them into graphic structures inlaid with chaotic bits of image, typography, and rust. And then you even began creating your own flyers, exposing them to the elements before tearing them, and then reassembling them into new forms. So what was the impetus for this particular project, and what was the reaction to the work?
0: In San Francisco, the telephone poles were just these beautiful textures of like old flyers and rusty staples. And I kept looking at them thinking, how can I get that into my house? Like it was basically <laughs> what I wanted to hang on my walls. And it eventually occurred to me that I could just take it off the telephone poles. Of course, there's thousands of rusty staples that you need to remove. So it wasn't easy. But it's also something that no normal human being would do because it's just you know, kind of silly.
1: Are you saying you're abnormal, Brian? I'm
0: saying I've got like some OCD problems, yeah. Um, (laughs) So I would, yeah, I would go and, um, you know, bring some tools and go and sit there and try to remove the paper and the rusty staples from the telephone poles. When I got it home, I didn't quite know what to do with it, but I started rearranging it into these shapes and then I'm like, oh, you can actually use the little bits of the paper to make more shapes. Yeah, it it is definitely OCD for sure.
1: What kind of flyers were you making on your own?
0: The problem with San Francisco is that it takes years for these things to get layered and caked on and weathered, and I've kind of taken down most of the good spots in San Francisco already. And so I was running out of paper, so I thought, well, what if I tried to recreate this on my own? So it's this laborious process of, like, printing out my own flyers, stapling them, rusting them, removing them, tearing them, reassembling. It's just, you know, a little absurd. But I've tried a couple different things. Some is is strictly typographic, and some is more pattern-based. So it's funny to, like, tear up a flyer that has a striped pattern on it and then reassemble that same exact pattern. I don't know why I do it,
1: really. Have you ever gotten in trouble with the police?
0: No, they've they've definitely come by. I have a great photo of, like, me taking stuff off the telephone pole and there's, like, a, a cop car in the background. And they drove by, like, four times. But they never stopped because I'm cleaning it up, you know.
1: It's sort of the reverse. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm like, I don't know. I'm not leaving a mess here. So,
1: <laughs> In your works on paper, you've said that you're interested in exploring the printed word as a visual representation of information, attempting to uncover new meaning in what is slowly becoming an outdated form. So I have a couple of questions here. Do you feel that the printed word is outdated now?
0: Well, I feel like there's a transformation with the way we receive information. You know, the primary way we get our news now is through the Internet. It's not newspapers. And to me, there is something so tactile and beautiful about our relationship to paper and printed words that, you know, I like the idea that this is all just information and it's all just being assembled in some way. And, you know, we might read the words across the page, but what if it was like chopped up or rearranged in a way that meant something different?
1: So what is your process for uncovering new meaning
0: some of the projects i've done involve word frequency so looking at a book and looking at the frequency of words that show up there so i've done work with the bible looking at for example the number of times the word gold shows up in the bible versus the number of times that faith shows up in the bible
1: what is the ratio
0: more more gold than faith yeah um and i've done love and evil the same way and Evil shows up about twice as many times as love. I've done, like, fully redacted versions of the Bible where I'll go through and and black out every single word in the Bible except for gold or faith or love or evil. How long does it Um, take? It takes a long time. Um, But again, back to my, like, sitting in one place just doing monotonous behavior. I think it's got to be therapeutic or it somehow keeps me sane, to be honest with you.
1: But what do you think it means that the word evil appears in the Bible more than love?
0: I think that maybe the focus is a little bit off. You know, I I think it was spawned by during the elections looking at the maps where people would look at various candidates' speeches and say how many times did they mention war in Iraq or how many times did they mention, you know, whatever it might be. And, you know, you could use those as a signal for what was important to them. And then it made me think, well, what if we took that same logic and applied it to like historical texts? And uh, it's fascinating when you think about it.
1: Let's talk about your brand new book. It is called Graphic Content True Stories from Top Creatives. And it is indeed that true stories, actual stories that have really happened, written by. Really, really wonderful creative people. Now, at the beginning of the book, you thank Eric Baker for planting the seed for the book with his amazing stories. Talk about how what what kind of amazing stories Eric was sharing with you and how he inspired you to make this book.
0: So we were out at a conference in San Marcos, Texas called Creative Summit, and it's put on by this guy, Chris Hill, and you know, I had not heard of it until I attended many years ago and found out that they were giving away twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars a year in scholarships to the design students in the community. And I was like, who's putting this on? Just this guy? So he's able to get all these great people out for this conference. Afterwards, you, you're you hanging out at this hotel in San Marcos, Texas, and we're on the front porch, I don't know, drinking scotch and telling stories. And Eric Baker rolls into the story about uh, reconnecting with his grade school teacher before she had passed away. And while he's telling the story... I'm looking at, you know, the 10, 15 people around us. They're just enthralled. They're hanging on every word he says. And this story is, it's an amazing story. And as he's delivering it, it's just, it's, you know, the oohs, the ahs. And then that moment at the end where you, you just, you have this feeling of like, just beauty. It was just such a, such a heartwarming story. At that moment, I thought this was better than the conference. Now, Eric rocked the stage at the conference, but there was something really fascinating about seeing this side of him and hearing the story that I really liked. And after the conference, like, I wrote him a note and said, this is what I want to do. I want you to, I want you to document your story, and I would love it, you know, for you to contribute. And he was totally down. And uh, it took me a little while to assemble enough stories to sort of, you know, pitch the book. But, you know, after I think people had seen it and seen the idea, they're like, this is actually pretty interesting. It's not, it's not your typical design book.
1: You write in the introduction that you doubt that anyone has ever sat back and thought to themselves, what the world needs now is another book about design. So aside from the sort of wonderful nature of Eric's storytelling ability, what gave you the sense that this could really be a vibrant book that people could relate to?
0: It's just a different side. It's a different take on the people that are in our industry that are contributing and we're very familiar with. I would say, their their graphic works or their teaching or whatever they might be um, contributing. But it's that other side that you might not get to see. You know, if you- yeah,
1: there's no holes barred in some of these stories. <laughs> there's some, there's Embarrassment and fun stuff in there. So t- Share some of your favorite. What are some of your favorite stories? Oh, man. Or do you want to tell us about your story? Because your story is pretty hysterical and does involve some serious cursing.
0: So I was... Um, We were going to a bachelor party, and I was meeting up with two friends, Donovan and Gil, and we met up at Gil's work on a Friday afternoon. And it was sort of in the East Bay, and East Bay traffic, we were going to drive up to Tahoe, is just awful on Friday afternoons. So the decision was, well, why don't we just stop someplace and get some food? And we ended up at this, I don't know, chain mall kind of place, it's just full of chain restaurants, and we ended up eating... At Applebee's. Yeah. So, um, and we're, it's totally crowded. We end up sitting at the bar tables and uh, the three of us are sitting there eating, I don't know, our chicken sandwiches and French fries. And they have this balloon animal girl there. And, you know, she's the person that walks around the restaurant and makes like hats and, you know, animals for little kids. Right. And then, you know, the the parents try to figure out how much is a hat made out of balloons worth (laughs) because they work for tips. And she comes over to her table and she goes, hey, guys, uh, would you guys like a balloon animal? And my buddy Donovan kind of looks at her and then he looks around and surveys the restaurant. And he says, out of all the people in this restaurant, what makes you think that we would want a balloon animal? Right. And she's a little taken aback. And she's like, well, you guys might like the stuff I could make. So Donovan says, well, what can you make? And she leans over and she whispers into my ear, I can make two monkeys fucking." <laughs> and I sat there. <laughs> Just sort of staring across the restaurant. And meanwhile, Donovan and Gill are looking at me. They're like, well, wh- what can she make? And I turn to them and I say, we're getting a balloon animal. <laughs> and we did. Yeah. And,
1: and how representative was it?
0: It was pretty good. She made us a monkey fucking a giraffe. Wow. Yeah, details and everything. It was pretty. Uh, and then she was like, try not to let people see it on the I was going to say, what about, the, about the kids all around?
1: <laughs> well, as, as I said, there are some really wonderful stories. People are just sort of fully involved in their embarrassment or their humility or their generosity. And uh, it's a star-stated list of people: Sean Adams, Marion Banshees, DJ Stout, Jennifer Sterling, John Maida, Alyssa Walker, Alice Boguski, Stanley Hainsworth, Ann Willoughby, Dana Arnett, Roman Mars, of course, our lovely Eric Baker, Christopher Simmons, Bonnie Siegler, Art Chantry, Jennifer Morla, Rick Valicenti, Jessica Helfand, Gail Anderson, Stefan Sagmeister, talking about his meeting with the Rolling Stones, which was hysterical. Mm-hmm. Um, James Victory, Aaron Draplin, Jeffrey Zeldman, and the list goes on and on. It's really a, a marvelous book. It's funny. It's heartbreaking. It's um, enthralling. It's just a terrific, terrific book. Congratulations on Thank the book, you. Brian. So let's talk about what you're doing now. Right this minute at, at, in, in your life, you are now at Facebook. You're working at Facebook. How did you get the job? What made you decide to leave your own company and go to work for Facebook? Tell us all the details. Well, I
0: I think after about seven years of being in my own studio, I was getting a little bored with the type of work that was coming in. And it could have been because we were small and weren't able to capture like the giant projects. People would approach us about projects and be like, oh, great, another website or oh, great, another logo. And it just, for whatever reason, wasn't getting me excited anymore. And I felt like I needed to try something new and push myself. And I, I think that if there's sort of one quality that I have for better or for worse, it's that I will continuously put myself into uncomfortable situations to force myself to learn or adapt or get better at something, um, be it public speaking. First time I did that, it was total crash and burn. My first time teaching, I think I went home and cried after my first class. It was just awful. I totally blew it. Um, but I learned and I got better at it. So for me, this was like, what's the most difficult thing I could think of doing right now? And it's like, well, in house corporate sounds difficult, in house corporate at a tech company sounds even more difficult. And at a company that's sort of growing and hasn't really spent much time crafting its voice yet. And so I started looking at companies where I thought I could have an impact. And Facebook was sort of at the top of the list.
1: And so did you reach out to them that headed the actual job? Happen.
0: I did apply through the corporate system. Which really?
1: So you went to their like Facebook.com recruiting website I and, and sent and in I, your resume? I did. Pe- really? People
0: still do that. It's amazing. But honestly, the way to get a job at these places is through networking, meaning getting your name in front of a recruiter is hugely important. Two minutes after clicking send, I also contacted everyone I knew that worked there and I knew different people across the company. And uh, through them, I was able to get connected to the rec- right recruiter, a recruiter who connected me to the right recruiter. And then the conversation started there.
1: And when you sent in your resume, how long had it been since you even had had a current resume?
0: Oh, it's, it's – yeah, you start – you forget about these things. Like you update it and then you don't use it for 10 years and then you're like, oh, I have to write a resume? Fortunately, I was doing the same thing for the seven years. So it wasn't that many things I had to add. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Updating your resumes. Is... And writing
1: a cover letter. Like, how do you write a kick-ass cover letter when you're Brian Singer?
0: And it, it's just going to go into a, a system, you know? No,
1: but like, how do, how do you even begin to describe yourself in a couple of paragraphs other than, you know, saying you're some guy? It's
0: It's not easy. I have a hard time when people ask me what I do. I'm like, yeah, I kind of do a lot of stuff. It's a little all over the place.
1: So what do you say now?
0: I kind of do a lot of stuff.
1: It's it's still all over the place. (laughs) Brian, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Thanks for having me. Brian Singer is the editor of graphic content, true stories from top creatives. You can find out more about him and see his fantastic art at com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortega. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.